0: You're listening to The Wildish Podcast, hosted by Hannah Fay. Hello, hello, my friends, and welcome to the premiere episode of The Wildish Podcast. I am your host, Hannah Fay, and I am honestly so excited to be starting this podcast. Now, if you are listening off of the audio version of this podcast, hello. I hope you enjoy the sound of my voice. And if you're watching off of the YouTube video version of this podcast, hello. I hope not only do you enjoy my voice, but also my face and my setup. My setup is supposed to mimic as if you came over to your friend's house and the two of you are just chilling like in the bedroom together just on the bed. We got some mood lighting. I've got my cute pothos plant hanging down and a super cute star Ikea little lighting thing going. I can't wait for this new adventure of mine. I have wanted to do a podcast for quite some time now for about a year or so. And, I'm um, I'm just so ready to start this. So I thought I would start the first episode by doing a little bit of like an introduction into me and also why the hell I decided to start a podcast to get to know me a little better. I am 23 years old at the time of filming this. Um, I live in the Bay Area in California. I am a California girl through and through. I went to a school called Notre Dame de Namur here in the Bay Area, and I graduated last year, so May 2020. And I have been trying to figure my life out ever since. I have always been a creative person ever since I was younger, but I never really knew what my calling was, but I started out going to school for psychology and I still love psychology. However, I realized that that was not necessarily what I wanted to do with my life. So after taking a few media classes, I switched my major to communications and media studies and ended up getting also a minor in business. This was to hopefully help me find a job easier. And then, of course, the panorama hit. So that didn't necessarily go very well, but it's okay. I was able to get a job as a product photographer at a pretty well-known company where I did meet some amazing people, but I ended up really not liking the company because they were treating their employees quite badly. And of course, lo and behold, they ended up laying us all off so they could move to a cheaper state. So, now I'm here (laughs) trying to make my creative dreams come true. So I started posting uh, consistently on YouTube with my spooky snack series, which comes out every Fridays. If you care to go to my channel and subscribe, as well as I do post some other content that's kind of sprinkled in throughout and now it's decided to start this podcast wildish i have been wanting to do a podcast for about a year or so i had talked to a few friends about starting one but i couldn't find anyone that was kind of on the same page with me and we all had different schedules going on and now that i had the free time to actually work on my creative pursuits i decided to start the podcast by myself now this stuff is like the whole youtube creative content creation thing is something I've wanted to do since I was 16. And now that I have the means to do it, I decided to try it out and give it a shot. With Wildish, first of all, what the hell does the name even mean? Where does it come from? This was honestly the first name that really stuck for me when I thought about doing a podcast with one of my friends. Um, Originally, when I said Wildish, I meant like, you know, like, kind of wild, wild-ish, you know what I mean? And then, like I said, I didn't end up being able to do the podcast with my friend. And so when I decided to start the podcast myself, wild-ish kind of transformed into wild space-ish. In other words, wild stuff, wild shit, talking about wild stuff, stuff that makes me go, whoa, that was crazy. So that's where the name wild-ish comes from. Let's see. Um, As for the topic of this podcast, I know I want to talk about all things, like I said, crazy stuff. So I want to talk about true crime, some kinds of mysteries, odd occurrences, conspiracies, paranormal things, all that kind of stuff. I have always loved mysteries ever since I was a kid. My favorite show was and still is Scooby-Doo. I Absolutely live, die, love Scooby Doo. And I also would grow up watching a lot of crime shows with my mom, such as, like, you know, NCIS, Criminal Minds, CSI, Law and Order, all the classics. I also love mystery books and movies, and I love all things ghosts and Halloween. Oh my God, yes, I am that kind of spooky bitch. That is me. Except, 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 I hate horror movies. I I'm too much of a wimp. I don't like watching, like I haven't seen the conjuring movies. And I especially don't like gory ho- horror movies. So like Saw and all those. Have not seen any of them. Midsummer. Will not, have not, don't plan on ever watching any of those. Sorry, I know I'm that might not make a lot of sense to people. Be like, wait, so you like spooky things, but you don't like horror movies? Yes. I like that, you know, call it softcore horror if you will. But <laughs> yet I love ghost investigation shows such as Ghost Adventures and things that talk about ghosts and whatever and crime shows that talk about, you know, true crimes and serial killers and all that kind of stuff. But I just, I'm not a horror movie type of person. But yeah, that's kind of where I got my idea for not only the Wildish podcast, but also for Spooky Snack on my YouTube channel. I wanted to talk about my interests and be able to share them with anyone who may have or share some of those similar interests along with me. So that is a very rough introduction of myself and this podcast. I'm not sure how much more you might want to know, but I'm sure the more I talk, the more you listen the more we will get into the nitty-gritty of who i am. <laughs> now, one big interest of mine that i never really noticed until i had the free time to start watching more documentaries was archaeological discoveries and overall just making discoveries on our world and making history more interesting to be honest. Growing up i absolutely hated history. I thought it was so freaking boring and Now that I've gotten the chance to explore things more for my own fun and less for homework assignments, I have obviously learned that history is actually super interesting. With that, For the rest of today's podcast, I decided that I wanted to talk about this one article that I found. It is off of Artnet.com, and it is the 10 most astonishing archaeological discoveries of 2020. So I'm just going to talk about a few. I don't want to go on for way, way too long and talk about all 10, but I will make sure to link the original article that has all 10 archaeological discoveries as well as the in-depth articles about each of the stories that I will be discussing today. So, without further ado, let's get into this. Now, I wanted to start off by talking about this one because (laughs) honestly, it's hilarious to me. So, the title goes, scientists uncovered a cartoonish 2,000-year-old cat figure etched into the earth among Peru's Nazca lines. Yes, you heard that right. A 2,000-year-old cat figurine etched into the side of a mountain. <laughs> to be honest, when I first saw the image of this, I was like, how How did no one see this? How, how can this cartoon image of a cat be on the side of a mountain and no one saw this, but let's, let's get into it. So also for my audio listeners, let me just describe this cat figurine to you. If you're watching on YouTube, I will post the image of this cat figurine, but for my audio listeners, it basically looks as if like a seven-year-old drew a cat and then someone enlarged it and put it on the side of a mountain. Dead ass. Now, according to the archaeologists who found it, um, it was barely visible and was about to disappear because the location was on a fairly steep slope. So natural erosion made it barely visible to be seen. But I'm assuming this image was taken after they went back over the lines to make it easier to see because this straight up looks like a cartoon cat on the side of a mountain. But the article says a 120 foot cat-like figurine was discovered etched into the landscape last week. Oh, this article came out October 19th, 2020. So in October of 2020 last year, A 120-foot cat-like figurine was discovered etched into the side of a mountain. That is quite the discovery. Uh, It says that it dates to around 200 to 100 BC, making it older than any other prehistoric images at that site. The article also says that researchers stumbled upon the figure, which resembles a lounging feline with a striped tail and pointy ears while doing conservation work at the rocky hill known as Mirador Natural. Now at this site, there are numerous prehistoric drawings that have been discovered with other animals such as a spider, a monkey, a hummingbird, a whale, a fish, and also some like humanoid looking figures. But this one, it seems like is the biggest and I would say the oddest one that you could come across. Cause like I said, it's literally etched on the side of a mountain. So I'm assuming this was either a very, very important cat or had some form of significance for it to be such a large image. Now, a super interesting thing that they mentioned is that the archaeologists were able to use artificial intelligence technology to enhance visuals of 143 lawn drawings, revealing outlines of living and mythical creatures, including a two-headed serpent and an angular bird-like am- animal. So technology is definitely like getting better, as we all know, and it's definitely helping out with Discovering some of these really interesting archaeological discoveries that give us just a little bit more of a clear glimpse into our history. But like I said, I'm very curious as to why there is a big ass picture of a cat on the side of a mountain. Like I'm not trying to make fun of you know the culture or whoever did it. I just want to know why. Like why a cat? It's adorable. It's super cute. But like why? It's 120 feet long, dude. Like that is huge. But moving on to our next story. This one is titled, Where Did Stonehenge Get Its Stones? Scientists have, dis- have solved the age-old mystery thanks to a 90-year-old retiree. Now, recently I actually watched a docu-series called uh Legends of the Lost with Megan Fox. Now Megan Fox was basically the host and she was the one going around and talking to all these experts about various different interesting archaeological discoveries and questions, right? And one of the ones that they talked about specifically was Stonehenge. And that one I found incredibly interesting. One of the theories that they were discussing in this specific docu series about stonehenge was that stonehenge's placement and design may have been some form of for some form of medical purposes because scientists were trying to make a correlation to why people would be traveling from thousands and thousands of miles away specifically to stonehenge and one of the reasons that you know you could Imagine was for some kind of mystical healing properties. Now, this is also theorized because the vibrations from the blue stones that are some of the stones used at Stonehenge, when hit, give off a specific vibration that is supposedly said to have some form of healing properties with your brain waves and everything. Now, using sound vibrations for healing properties is not a new. Theory or something that's looked into. So it wasn't really surprising that they were trying to make some form of a connection because, based on the design of Stonehenge, vibrations could bounce off of the various stones. And if you stood in the very center, who knows if maybe that had a specific healing property to them. Now, Megan Fox actually really was interested in this theory. So they went ahead and recorded the sound. Uh, the vibrations that was given off after hitting the blue stones, and she went to this lab where they had her hooked up to all these wires and had her listen to the vibrations that they recorded. And while the, she was doing this, they were recording her brain waves to see if there was any interesting discoveries that they could come across. And sure enough, the lab tech there said that what her what he was she was experiencing. With the vibrations was not at all what he was expecting. He really didn't think much of the theory. He thought it was basically going to be a load of hoopla, and turns out that it actually did show some form of significance with her brainwaves. Now, once again, this is was just a little trial run done with her. It's not by any means a significant case study. However, it does give some backing to the theory to encourage people to look farther into it. Now this article specifically is more trying to discover where the rocks originated from, not so much why Stonehenge was created, but it's still super interesting because Stonehenge overall is one big mystery. We really don't know too much about it and it's so incredibly interesting and I could do a whole separate wildish episode on Stonehenge because the theories surrounding the origins of Stonehenge are so wild. What I really wanted to touch on from this article specifically is, so David Nash, a geomorphologist and the lead author of the study, believes that the ancient builders transported the stones, which weigh up to 30 tons, down the Wiltshire Avon Valley to the east or via the western route across Salisbury Plain. Very similar to like the the pyramids in Egypt, how these people were able to move these hefty stones to its location is mind-boggling. Scientists knew for pretty much for certain that the stones at Stonehenge were not originally there. They had to have been moved from other locations. The question more so was where, like where did they get these stones? How far did they have to move them? And through their studies they were actually able to find out that the other smaller stones within the inner circle, which are the blue stones like I mentioned from the docu series, which were erected around 3000 BC, they found evidence that they came from the Priscilla Hills, 100 80 miles away in Western Wales. Now the exact sites were actually identified in 2019 after eight years of research. The new research was made possible thanks to a former diamond cutter, Robert Phillips. Now he was involved in making the repairs of Stonehenge back in 1958. They had re-erected the uh, fallen stones to recreate it into a three piece standing stone. Like it's believed it originally was when Stonehenge was first created. Now Phillips and his team drilled holes and inserted metal bolts into the stones to reinforce them, to prevent them from falling again. But Phillips actually kept one of the three and a half foot cylindrical cores that were set to be like discarded completely, but he kept One as a souvenir in his office. And thankfully, he returned the core to the English Heritage, which oversees Stonehenge. Now, obviously, archaeologists realized that this was a super exciting thing because actually, you're not allowed to drill stones in Stonehenge anymore. So, this way, they were able to actually do testing on the cores from the stone to figure out its original origins. Original origins like unnecessary original origins from its origins because or ignore it, (laughs) they were able to use the cores to find out the origins of the stone. There we go, that's better English. So, the article says, unlike these stones on site, the core doesn't have any surface weathering which can affect readings of its chemical composition. More importantly, the team was allowed to use destructive sampling, pulverizing about half of the sample for a thorough analysis, creating a, quote, geochemical fingerprint. Then they used a portable x-ray spectrometer to take a non-invasive surface reading of all 52 stones on the site. Scientists were planning on trying to rule out certain areas of where the stones could be from. They weren't necessarily planning on being able to map exactly where the stones were from, but they got a hit and they were able to match the exact location these stones came from. The article says, comparing the chemical signature to mask spectroscopy readings on samples from 20 boulder fields across southern and eastern england the researchers identified the west woods as a match with nearly a hundred percent certainty isn't that insane so david nash said to the irish times quote we weren't really setting out to find the source of stonehenge we picked 20 areas and our goal was to try to eliminate them to find one's find ones that didn't match. We didn't think we'd get a direct match. It was a real oh my goodness moment. That is incredible. This is an incredible discovery, but it still kind of leaves the question of how the builders chose where to get the stones. Like why specifically then did they pick those stones in that area? English heritage historian Susan greenery, great no green, green, greeny, green, green greenay? I'm so sorry. One thing I feel like this podcast is going to teach me is I don't know how to pronounce things very well, but Susan, <laughs> um, Susan said when sourcing the sarsens, the, the stones, the overriding objective was size. They wanted the biggest, most substantial stones they could find. And it made sense to get them from as nearby as possible. This is in stark contrast to the source of the blue stones, where something quite different, a sacred connection to these mountains perhaps, was at play. So like I said, scientists still don't know a hundred percent sure why some of these stones were picked specifically. The docuseries, like I said, tried to make a connection with the whole vibration thing because the blue stones gave off a different vibration and frequency than the other stones. So maybe that has something to do with it. But overall, the speculation and hypotheses surrounding Stonehenge is super interesting. But this at least is starting to give some development into why these stones were picked out in the first place. And hopefully one day we can actually learn a little bit more of why Stonehenge was created and what it might have been created for. Moving on, another topic that was actually discussed in that same docuseries with Megan Fox was that scientists are uncovering the remains of warriors in various countries. And a lot of them are coming up to actually be women. Now, this article, the title goes, archaeologists just discovered the bones, weapons, and headdresses of four real-life Amazon warriors in Russia. Now, like I said, this was actually one of the topics talked about in that docuseries because scientists had came across the remains of Viking women who seemed to be very well-respected warriors and hunters in whatever tribe they belonged to. I'm not going to be able to pronounce the names correctly in this article because a lot of these are Russian areas. But so the article goes, an archaeological dig in the eastern region of mm, Vorons, Russia? Um, has unearthed an incredible discovery, a group of ancient burial pits with four women entombed with spears, headdresses, and other objects pointing to the existence of real life Amazon warriors. I thought this was incredibly interesting because like I mentioned in the docu-series that I watched, scientists had also came across what seemed to be a ancient burial pit of Viking women who were highly respected warriors. They were left with also with headdresses, weapons, gifts, and things that most scientists typically found associated with like men warriors who were like quote unquote generals or high ranking officials in these warrior groups. And like I said, patriarchal society has constantly had this belief that ancient women also weren't looked at as strong enough or weren't able to fight in these terms like men were. But we're starting to see a lot more evidence that proves that to be completely wrong. The article says these women were likely nomadic Scythian warriors who populated the steppes of southern Russia and formed a matriarchal society that inspired everything from Xena warrior princess to Gal Gadot's Wonder Woman. Although fragments of similar ceremonial headdresses have been found before, the one found in Forone, I don't know how to say it, I'm so sorry, um, is in superb condition and is the first to be located in this precise location near the Don River. It was discovered on the head of one of the women. The bodies were found in a group of burial mounds that scientists noted had been at some point ravaged by robbers. In the first mound, the skeletal remains of two women, one was aged between 20 and 25, while the other was between 12 and 13, were surrounded by more than 30 iron arrowheads, pieces of a horse harness, iron hooks, knives, and animal bones likely belonging to a horse. In addition, molded clay vessels and An incense burner dating to the second half of the fourth century B.C. were found scattered around various levels of the pit. In another plot, two untouched skeletons were discovered inside wooden graves cushioned by grass. Where scientists found a roughly 50-year-old woman wearing a heavily engraved gold-stamped headpiece adorned with floral ornaments and pendants. The final woman, aged between 30 and 35, was. was found in the pose of a rider as if she were mounted on a horse, according to archaeologists. Honestly, if all of this has taught us anything, it's that women were definitely more respected in ancient history than we originally thought they were. Uh, I feel like we're always taught, like in history books and stuff, that once again, like women were the gatherers, they were the ones who stayed at home and just took care of the kids, which of course is still important and necessary. But I think it's also interesting and important for us to talk about and discover the fact that women were looked at as highly respected warriors back in the time as well. And that maybe all of these societies weren't necessarily patriarchal societies. Maybe a lot of them were more matriarchal than we believe that they were. So I thought that one was super incredibly interesting. This next article, it's titled, It Wasn't Just Pompeii. Archaeologists say that the Roman Republic and even ancient Egypt's, oh gosh, Ptolemaic kingdom may have been ended by volcanoes. Okay. Now the article starts with the Kokmok, I, Oakmok, I think that's how you say it. okay Okmok, O-K-M-O-K. I'm going to say oakmoke. I really hope I'm Not mispronouncing that, but the Okmok volcano erupted early in the year 43 BC, spewing clouds of ash into the atmosphere and blocking the sun's rays, causing two of the coldest years in the past two and a half millennia. The event triggered a famine that exacerbated existing political tensions in Rome and led to the rise of the Roman Empire. This is according to a new study published in the journal Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Josh McConnell, a climate scientist at the Desert Research Institute in Reno and the study's lead author, told Art, Artnet News in an email quote, I find the timing of such a massive eruption in Alaska with respect to such important historical and political changes in the the Mediterranean very interesting. Was it all a coincidence? Maybe, but logic would suggest that the very unusual weather caused by the Okmok eruption must have played a significant role. Now, how and why did they make this connection to the Okmok Eruption and the fall of the Roman Empire. Now, a study conducted that analyzed six Arctic ice cores drilled vertically from eight glaciers in the 1990s. Each core has layers, it says, much similar to like tree rings, so which allow scientists to drill back in time, examining the ice year by year based on the varying elements present in the frozen samples. So at the Desert Research Institute's ice core laboratory, the cores were melted down and the water analyzed by sensitive instruments. McConnell and his team soon realized that the ice from 43 BC had an unusual amount of tephra, a material produced in eruptions, which was evidence of one of the biggest volcanic events of the last 2,500 years. But first they had to figure out where that volcanic ash had originated. Now, according to this, it talks about how tephra is actually unique to each volcano, and it's representative of the specific rocks and magma in each volcano. So that means that with scientific testing, they can uh, identify the origins of each individual sample. 35 samples were taken from the ice cores that didn't match the rock chemistry of Mount Etna, um, or I'm... I'm not going to be able to say this one, but another one in Nicaragua or one in Russia. And instead, it was a match for the one in Alaska, Okmok. I really hope I'm saying that right. I feel like that sounds wrong, Okmok, but I, I'm i sure someone will let me know if I'm saying it wrong. So testing samples from the ice and from Okmok on the same instrument confirmed that it was a match. The study used climate models to see how oak milk's eruption would have affected the Mediterranean and found that temperatures could have dropped up to 13.3 degrees Fahrenheit, with precipitation increasing up to 400%. And as they said, the Roman Republic was already on the brink of collapse, so they believe that this might have just been the straw that broke the camel's back. McConnell said, quote, my understanding is that food scarcity and associated civil unrest was pretty common during the Roman Republic, so it wouldn't have taken much of a disruption in food production to push the Republic from scarcity to shortage and famine, with disease and riots following close on the heels of famine, end quote. The effects of Okmok also rippled out to ancient Egypt, its dark cloud of volcanic aerosols, possibly causing a drought in Africa the resulting Egyptian famine likely made it easy for Octavian to defeat and annex the fallen Ptolemaic kingdom as part of the nascent Roman Empire in 30 BC. Once again, I apologize for probably mispronouncing a lot of stuff in that sentence. But now, of course, like I said, there was a lot of civil unrest in the Roman Republic, and it basically it was already leading up to, to the fall sometimes. happening. However, this, if we've all learned anything from a pandemic, some a crazy event like this would definitely play some huge factor into the outcome that it did. So I think it's just super interesting to how history can completely change in just as simple as one discovery, something that we had no idea would have made a huge effect. Or if I don't even know if scientists even knew that that eruption had even occurred specifically at that time before having to do the research and find this scientific evidence that says it did, like that's insane. The fact that history can change so quickly just from one discovery That's incredible. Now, the last story that I think I'm going to talk about for today, the title is a mysterious ice age structure made from the bones of 60 woolly mammoths has been unearthed in Russia. seems like Russia has a lot of stuff going on, especially in 2020. The article says a 25,000 year old ice age structure made from the bones of 60 woolly mammoths has been unearthed in Russia. A team of scientists have been working to excavate the 40 foot wide circular arrangement of bones at the P- Paleolithic site located some 300 miles south of Moscow since 2014. Now, looking at this image of of this structure is insane. It's basically a square plot with what looks like in the center of it, literally a circular mound of woolly mammoth bones. The article says, as many as 70 similarly shaped mammoth structures have been discovered throughout Europe, including two uncovered at the site in the 1950s and 60s. The oldest of this sites date back to 22,000 years, 3,000 years earlier than the one recently found. They're also significantly smaller with most measuring less than 10 feet wide. Researchers believe that they were used as modest protective dwellings during the frigid conditions of the Ice Age. It says, researchers are still struggling to understand why the structure, the oldest and largest of its kind, was made and what it was used for. Alexander Pryor, an archaeologist at the University of Exeter, said, quote, clearly a lot of time and effort went into building the structure, so it was obviously important to the people that made it for some reason, end quote. Some people have suggested that it might have been like a ritual, but he said he's not really sure He said, quote, ritual is embedded in human lives in all sorts of ways. The fact that they might have designed a structure of this type as a part of both their ritual and their sustenance activities is very reasonable. Now, it also says that animal remains, which have been consistently found alongside other mammoth constructions, were not found in this bone circle suggesting that it may not have been a place where people stored food or stayed for a lengthy period of time. Excavators did, however, find vegetable tissue and charcoal from burnt wood, clues that tell us that there was plant life nearby, even during the ice age. But the biggest question that still kind of remains from all of this is where did all of those woolly mammoths come from? No place in the world has had so many skeletons, From the extinct animal in one place. And scientists aren't sure if the mammoths were killed or found dead or even how their bodies would have been transported. Now this I think is, it's honestly just one of those big mysteries because it kind of just leaves you going similar to Stonehenge and the pyramids. How did it get there? why is it there what were the people doing there like what 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 was the purpose and these pictures are so incredible for my audio listeners like i said it's just a square plot with a circular mound of mammoth bones and it's a pretty big mound too like this doesn't look like oh they came across like one woolly mammoth and you know left the bone remains there like this is this is a lot of bones so it kind of just leaves you really wondering like what it was for now i guess the idea of using it as some form of a structure obviously makes a lot of sense like it was mentioned multiple times here but if there's no evidence of people having stayed there for long periods of time it obviously wasn't some form of a living like a home you know, like it wasn't like an igloo that used mammoth bones to support the walls. What, what was it used for? It's honestly super interesting. And these are all the reasons why I love looking into different archaeological discoveries and all of the different mysteries that come from our history and from these archaeological discoveries because in a lot of ways it leaves you questioning more about what people were going through back in the day but also like with the one of the volcano that possibly aided in the fall of the Roman Republic it leaves you kind of understanding a little bit more about what might have taken place in history but yeah that's those are the stories that i'm going to be talking about today let me know if you found any of these interesting And if you'd like me to go through and talk a little bit more in depth about any of these stories, I definitely think I want to do a future episode talking about Stonehenge specifically because, like I said, there's so many mysteries surrounding Stonehenge and what it's for, how it was made, all that kind of stuff. But, and I will definitely be doing one on the pyramids in Egypt but yeah, otherwise, let me know what you guys thought of this first episode of the podcast. If you enjoyed this format, this is my first time ever doing a podcast. So bear with me. I'm not 100% sure how I'm going to be doing stories moving forward. And like I said, my topics are going to change every episode. I do think I do want to consistently do little updates of the biggest discoveries in whatever year. Like... 2018, 2019. I'll do probably an updated one for 2021 at the end of the year. And there are plenty more things that were discovered in 2020 alone. So I would love to do an additional episode talking about other crazy discoveries that have happened in 2020. So let me know if you would be interested in hearing about any of that. Otherwise, I hope you guys enjoyed my first ever episode of the wild Podcast. If you did, make sure to subscribe and like and share and all those good things. Any bit of your support would mean so, so much to me. And if you'd like to keep up with me, please feel free to follow me on YouTube, where I post my spooky snacks every Friday, as well as some other fun content throughout. And you can also follow me on Instagram at Hannah Rose Fay, where I will be posting updates on podcast episodes, as well as any future YouTube videos. With all that being said, I hope you guys have a great rest of your day, and I will see you guys in my next episode of the Wildish Podcast. Bye, guys!